Hello, and welcome to Lori Boyle Radio on the Wicked Housewives on K-Pod Radio Network. This show explores what it means to live a healthy, happy, and satisfying life. Cutting-edge insights and philosophies will be discussed with guests who range from entrepreneurs and health experts to pilots and award-winning authors. They are all just ordinary people who have to have done extraordinary things. Please join her on Thursday nights at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific. Now here is your host, Lori Boyle. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for joining me today. I have a great guest for you. It's Larry McDonald, and uh, he has written a book. He's the author of the book, um, A Colossal Failure um, of Common Sense, The Inside Story of the Collapse of Lehman Brothers. And uh, he's going to talk with us today for uh, Women's Voices magazine, my column, uh, Begin Where You Are Now, which is a column about uh, people in transition in the job market. Uh, let me introduce him first. Mr. McDonald is currently Managing Director, Head of the U.S. Macro Strategies Group at Society General, based in New York City. At the height of the 2008 financial crisis, Mr. Lawrence McDonald wrote a book on the fall of Lehman Brothers, A Colossal Failure of Common Sense, The Inside Story of the Collapse of Lehman Brothers. In his book, Larry details his experience working as vice president at Lehman Brothers in New York and provides a behind-the-scenes look on why one of the most prominent investment banks failed. The book is a risk manager's guide to the right and wrong moves and explains why investors must stay ahead of policies from Washington, D.C. and Europe. Published in 2009 by Random House, A Colossal Failure hit the New York Times bestsellers list upon release and is now on one of the top best-selling books in the world. Colossal Failure has been translated into 12 different languages. Additionally, Mr. McDonald has participated in four major financial crisis documentaries, BBC's The Love of Money, CBC's House of Cards, National Geographic's Decade of the 2000s, and Sony Pictures' Academy Award-winning documentary, Inside Job. Larry is also a European and Washington policy risk analyzer. He is a frequent guest contributor at CNBC and is a highly regarded policy risk consultant to hedge funds, family offices, asset managers, and high net worth investors. His 17 Lehman risk indicators help investors get in front of painful risk-off trades in the global markets. Notably is Larry's involvement as a special advisor to the Financial Crisis Inquiry Commission, FCIC, created by Congress in 2009 to investigate domestic and global causes of the economic and financial crisis in the United States. So, Larry, thank you so much for being on my show. I really appreciate that. Thanks, Lori. Thanks for that warm introduction. Oh, you're very welcome. Um, I first want to ask you, you know, for for our listeners who a lot of them are in transition or a lot of them have faced uh, because of downturns in the economies and downsizing of their companies, um, you know, being uh, without a job, um, how did you get the news that Lehman Brothers was filing bankruptcy and laying off thousands of employees? Well, I was part of a, a wonderful group of people, a group of revolutionaries that 
saw the you know saw the madness within the firm, saw some of the bad things that were going on. I mean, there's no I in team. Uh, to me, Lehman was never rotten at the core. That's where all the beauty was. She was really rotten at the head. And uh, I would say throughout 2007, 2008, uh, we, we started to see the warning signs. And uh, one by one by one, uh, the people that stepped up uh, to to try to stop the madness, one by one, they were all silenced. I mean, at Lehman Brothers, you kept your head down, you did your job, or you lost both. Mm. Wow. Um, how did you deal with the with the shock and the disbelief that this was all happening? Well, it was uh, it was a it was a tough transition at first. I mean, uh, this was the fourth largest investment bank in the world. It was uh, a, a firm with a wonderful culture, uh, a number of people that I was so close with. Uh, it was really a good group of people that that I was part of that um, were all affected in a very, very hard, harsh way. Uh, I think the, the, the loss of, of, of livelihoods was, was extremely hard to deal with. But um, I think the very beginning, the transition of realizing that everything that you put so much faith into was collapsing, I mean, it's, it's, it's like... It's like pulling. It's like taking an onion and pulling back, um, pulling back the leaves, so to speak. And then you get in the middle of the onion as you take each piece down, and you're you're staring at skull and crossbones in the middle. So it was difficult the transition, but the first part was difficult. But over time, I did a number of things to to to, to help the transition. Mm-hmm. And what were those? Well, I was really working, working on myself around uh, reinvention. So I was a bond trader. I traded high yield bonds, and um, the financial crisis was coming at us. So I, I left the firm. A number of us left the firm, and and uh, I just felt that I there was I really wanted to bring the unvarnished tale of what happened inside this giant bank. To the world, and um, I, I, I had a interesting group of friends that were at high levels of the bank, and I also had a very good friend from Cape Cod, Patrick Robinson, who had just written *Lone Survivor*, that was a number one New York Times bestseller. And so I put everybody together, and uh, between Patrick and his relationships with the publishers in New York and with my relationships within the senior management of Lehman, the revolutionaries together, it was, it was a wonderful project because it brought a story to the world. I think we've sold about 450,000 copies now. And, uh, we really got the message out to the world about what happened inside the bank. Did the, did writing that book really help you through the transition I mean, you you probably didn't know it was going to be such a great seller. The process of writing the book did that help you? Oh yeah, it was it was really um, just to it was a cleansing experience to to um, to write about the good times, the culture, all the wonderful people within the bank, 
a lot of people think Wall Street's full of you know bad bankers. Sure, there's a lot of bad bad apples, but uh, the experience of writing it was very valuable because I the one bottom line uh, conclusion that I came up with was uh, at Lehman there were 24,992 people making money doing the right thing and eight guys eight men losing it. I mean, what? Why do you think they they made such a big mistake? I mean, here, here we are. I mean, anyone uh, who files bankruptcy, the long and the short of it is, you borrowed too much money and you can't pay it back. I mean, you would think though that people in the banking industry wouldn't make that kind of mistake. I guess they did get caught in the economic downturn at the time that really exacerbated the situation, but. You know, you're you're thinking that those kind of guys can see it kind of coming because, you know, they've seen it before, it's cyclical and, and all those things. So why do you think they made such a mistake? Well, a couple things. One, the, the world was uh, growing in terms of the emerging markets. So if you look at the economic activity outside of America, the growth had gone from say, 2%, 3% in the 70s, uh, 5 6 7% in the 90s. And by 2005, the growth outside of America in the emerging markets, led by China, was 10 to, 10 to 12%, in some cases 15 mm-hmm. So you had this massive engine of growth outside of the United States, and a lot of executives at banks in America in 2006, 7 thought that even if the U.S. slowed down, that the global economy would pick up and uh, therefore that the investments, the bank tried to put lots of money overseas and hedge themselves with investments in emerging markets. And so they thought that that part of the world would really help them. Uh, The second thing was that um, in terms of the bailouts, so starting in 1998, uh, with the Greenspan and bailout of long-term capital, and and if you if you move through uh, out to the uh, out to the 80s, I'm sorry, out to the 90s and late now, I'm sorry, out to the 2000s with uh, Fannie and Freddie, as well as um, as well as countrywide, you had a number of financial institutions that, when they ran into trouble, the Federal Reserve and Treasury were there to bail them out, and I think that a lot of executives on Wall Street felt that uh, even if they ran into tough times, uh, the federal government, the Treasury would be there with uh, emergency funds to support uh, their endeavors. <laughs> mm, wow. You know, that's interesting that uh, the federal, uh, that companies like Lehman feel like they can look to the government to bail them out, but but the, you know, people who, the working people kind of help like that. It's either you file bankruptcy or, you know, you run from your creditors or, or whatever. So that's that's an interesting take on that. Yeah, no, as, as I say in my book, it's completely outrageous. And um, I one of the things I, I wanted to do in the book is to out the bad guys and out this too big to fail was is, is really just outrageous where you create a bank uh, Lehman Brothers was a $750 billion domino, and when it fell, it hurt so many people around the world. And uh, 
well, many of our executives, the, some of the bad guys, thought that, geez, if you take on all this risk, if you're a $750 billion domino, how can they let us go down? And uh, that was the mistaking, that was the, that, that was the really poor judgment that they used. Yeah, I think when, you know, when you depend on someone else, you know, to to save you, and all of a sudden they go, ah, you know, not today, or, you know, no, I don't think so, not going to happen. I mean, that that's a really bad backup plan. <laughs> yeah, so, but, not, but, you know, I, I, I point out, listen, the Lehman Brothers executives deserve a lot of blame, but let's face it, our officials in Washington that have been bailing out all these other companies, they've conditioned people to believe in bailouts, and and it, it's just very unfortunate. The, the federal government, and the Fed, Treasury, they've just bailed out every uh, major financial institution from you know, from like Fannie and Freddie, uh, all these bad guys uh, countrywide uh, all along. And um, it, it's unfortunate, but um, they've conditioned people to believe in the next bailout. Um, yeah, that's right. And the, the next question I want to ask you is, why do you think they didn't do Lehman where they did like GM and others? But first I'm going to go to a commercial and we're going to be right back with that answer. Hey, Jenna, have you seen the TV show Wicked Housewives on Cape Cod on Channel 99? OMG, I love that show. It's with Kathleen O'Keefe Cannabis. She's an international best-selling author and Lori Boyle, the CEO of Lori Boyle Media. Right. They're hosting a personal development seminar, Retreat for the Soul. It's about your dreams, meditation, healing, and the subconscious mind. Ooh. It sounds fun. And rejuvenating. Let's go. Where do we sign up? Their website, wickedhousewivesoncapecod.com. Did you know that you can use your own radio show to promote your business and become a celebrity in your area or industry? Do you have a great idea for a radio show or a passion that you would like to share with other like-minded people? The Wicked Housewives on Cape Cod Radio and TV hosts Kathleen O'Keefe Cannabis and Lori Boyle will show you how. Go to wickedhousewivesoncapecod.com. Do you have a great story to tell or do you want to write your memoir? Best-selling author Kathleen O'Keefe Cannabis and Lori Boyle, CEO of Lori Boyle Media, are the hosts of the Wicked Housewives on Cape Cod TV and radio shows. Join their Writer's Workshop Intensive to get writing and get published. Go to wickedhousewivesoncapecod.com. Hi, we're back with Larry McDonald, and uh, we're having a really fascinating discussion uh, about our American economics. Um, so, Larry, why do you think the government bailed out GM and not Lehman? I mean, why tick and choose like that? Well, that's what's what's going on is when government gets extremely large and when banks get extreme, you know, too big to fail, um, government officials start picking winners and losers. This has been happening all over the world, uh, not just in the United States, but it's happening in Europe. And it's kind of sad because the way capitalism is supposed to work is you're supposed to let the bad guys fail. Those failures um when when failures happen those failures put forth corrective mechanisms within the economy within the psychology of people uh in the in, in in finance and around the world as investors as market participants and when you take away when you disrupt this uh system that's been going on since the days of Adam Smith when you disrupt it with picking winners and losers it creates all kinds of wacky side effects and uh I think the reason 
Uh, I think that they felt that maybe Lehman was, even though they were a big bank, they were smaller than uh, Merrill Lynch, they were smaller than Citigroup, and so maybe they thought that at the end of the day they needed to let someone fail. And I also think that they needed to the TARP bill. You remember the Troubled Asset Relief Program was a, a two trillion dollar bailout of our financial system, and um, the vote in Washington on Capitol Hill probably wouldn't have passed if they hadn't let Lehman fail. Number one, and number two, the Lehman management had uh, a, a not so not not so good relationship with the Federal Reserve and Treasury. So I think they wanted they wanted to a victim, and I think they took Lehman Brothers' head, they put it under water, and they watched for the bubbles. Wow. So you, you sort of were the sacrificial lamb to get other uh, legislature passed. Really? Yeah, that, that's, what you're saying. Yeah, that's yeah. it. They needed, hmm. um, I call it a moral hazard moment. So they needed... It was when they bailed out Fannie and Freddie. Fannie and Freddie were 64 times leveraged. They, I mean, which is just evil, right? So they, yeah. the government of the United States allowed Fannie and Freddie, uh, which are two mortgage giants that are government-sponsored entities in Washington. They, they let Fannie and Freddie become a giant hedge fund, 64 times leveraged. That that means that you're. Imagine walking into a casino like Mohegan Sun. Excuse me, walking in and you're playing blackjack at the table. Uh, you have $100 in your back pocket, but you're playing at the at the tables with $6,400. So you only have $100, but you're playing with 6400 That's what Fannie and Freddie were doing. And uh, so the government allowed a lot of these institutions to become uh, massively levered. Wow, that's incredible. Um, but... You know what does it what does it say for us as Americans? I mean, if, you know, going to work for companies and then, you know, are they going to be the the one that's favored or not when the trouble comes? Um, you know, uh, what about when we make investments as small investors, and you know, we don't know who's in favor with the government and who isn't, and we don't know the inside scoop. I mean, how does how does that affect us on Main Street? Well, one thing is um, the process of reinvention. So people that are listening to us right now, the one thing about what happened to me is it forced reinvention, number one, because I, I got forced out of my comfort zone. And by, by being forced out, it, it created a whole new world of opportunities. So my life has changed dramatically for the positive, even though at the time, I thought it was the end of the world. So people listening to us right, might, right now might be at a bank or might be at some, some institution. It doesn't have to be a bank. It could be any company. Uh, and they, they may have been there for a long time, and they're in that comfort zone. And they're thinking about, oh, geez. I mean, there's so many gifts inside of all of us. Some of your, some of your great seeds of success are deep inside of you, and you, sometimes you just have to go get them. And a lot of times... A crisis creates an opportunity to go get those seeds of, of greatness inside of us. Number one. Number two. Uh, when people are, are at companies and um, they see things that that aren't. When you see when if you're at a company, you see things that don't add up. 
when you see things that are that are wrong, and sometimes you just look the other way because you know you're part of the company, you want to be a team player. But uh, ethically and cultural, in terms of ethics and culture, uh, if you see the wrong things, the bad things, uh, stand up and uh, speak up for yourself, or just leave the company. And sometimes it's the hardest thing to do. But you'd be surprised that those seeds of greatness are right there, and you just have to go get them. Yeah, I think that's that's true. Um, you know, we always urge people to write their book. You know, and uh, we have a seminar, in fact, uh, for writing your book. In fact, we're we're going to pl- plan a cruise probably in uh, January to to actually write your book, and we'll have people on board that can that can help you. So I think that's going to be fun. But uh, I think you're right. You know, now you're forced to do something different. But I think in your back pocket, maybe you even have to have an idea of how you can um, create your own company or write your book or go into business for yourself, um, you know, on the side, start it on the side in case something like this happens because it doesn't seem like uh, that you can go work for a company and work there for 35 years, retire with a pension, and everything is just going to be fine. Those days are pretty much gone. Would you agree? Yes, yeah. I mean, it's, you can't rely on uh, pen, pensions. If you look back over the last 10 years, the pension system in the United States is, is, is massively failing. Most pensions are underfunded. And if you're, especially if you're a police officer or a fireman in some of these states and counties, and it's just it's, people don't understand. The Federal Reserve has kept interest rates at 0% for six, seven years. So these pensions, um, the growth rate of the pensions is based off of like a 1970s, 1980s, 1990s mentality where the risk-free rate was 7%. Mm -hmm. So politicians have been making promises to pension holders that are just massively, disgustingly, mathematically unsustainable. And so you're going to have to stand up for yourself because it's just simple mathematics. The risk-free rate on U.S. Treasuries is practically zero. And these pensions are promising people 6 to 8% growth to fund. You need 6 to 8% growth to fund the payments that many people are expecting over the next 20, 30 years. So you're right. You're going to stand up for yourself and, and, and be more independent because you can't depend on anybody else. Really? I mean, we're going to become a nation of uh, entrepreneurs. I, I mean, we we sort of are with capitalism, but it's it's going to be even more prevalent. How do you see the uh, the job front changing uh, in the future? Well, you know, I hate to be political, but the, the, the Obama administration um is not because of regulation and because tax laws and because of the way small businesses are treated a lot of people have been a little bit intimidated to uh i think what's happened over the last 10 years and 15 years is the creativity a lot of a lot of people to go out into the into the private sector and or in a small business 
because of all the regulations that exist today that didn't exist many years ago and because of all the, the uncertainty around the taxes, the uncertainty around uh, rules and regulations around creating a business. I think there's a good chance that over the next couple of years, this this, impro- this improves. In other words, in, in the next administration, uh, I think th- there could be a much more business-friendly environment that could really uh, help entrepreneurs get out there and start business. I'm not saying you can't do it today, but if you just look at the laws of the land and the red tape, there's no question that it's, uh, it's, it's literally mountains bigger than it was 10 to 15 years ago. Really? Um, that's that's interesting. Do you think that sort of plays a part with uh, having all, all a lot of manufacturing jobs go overseas and people like in China, they're not even close to the regulations that we have for like the workers like OSHA or even the... Um, FDA, any kind of federal regulations for their products, and we're buying those products, and they they're not um, they're they're not basically regulated by any of those. Oh, um, you're you're so right, uh, and it's it's disgusting. There's an uneven playing field, and Donald Trump has uh, you know forget about your politics. I'm not supporting any politician, but he's hit a nerve here, and he's got the support. People are coming out and voting for him that haven't voted in 20 years because it's just what you're saying, Lori. And, and it's it's OSHA. It's um, it, it's also if you look at China, if you look at look at environmental rules. Okay, so if you say you're a coal company or any kind of energy company or any kind of company that deals with the environment, uh, what's happening today is just so outrageous because China is admitting. Uh, 10 to 15 times the carbon uh, that the U.S. is, and um, and but 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 the, the politicians in America want to make a statement. They want they want to feel good, and and actors want to get up uh, at the Academy Awards and make themselves look, you know, more human and understanding. But it's great if you support the green movement. That's wonderful, but it has to start in China. There's, there's there's 320 million people in the United States. There's, there's over a billion and a half people in China. And like you said, the rules and regulation, the carbon emissions, I mean, whatever we do for the green movement here is undone in, in, in a couple of months in China. Just, mm-hmm. just, just, just have to do the math. It's very, very simple. Right, right. You know, I even noticed um, ISO, so I look at material all the time, and I noticed that these these uh, flannels, like that, are made for babies and children. You know, they have little uh, rattles on them or, or whatever. Um, this stuff says flammable on it. This is the stuff that's coming from China. And I know that in the United States, baby clothes cannot be made out of flammable material, and that's been the case for oh gosh, since probably before I was born. So I mean, how are they? How are they able to sell us this stuff that's really, um, you know, uh, not up to par at all? It's well below par, and it doesn't even meet our own standards for safety sometimes. And yet, there's no problem importing it and selling it here. Yeah, it's because you're talking about a centrally planned government where 
and, and I've delivered two speeches in Beijing. Uh, my book has sold uh, over over 40,000 copies in China. And I've been there, and, and uh, it's very clear. You have a, a centrally planned economy where, yeah, you've got a group, group of men that sit in a room in China that plan out the entire economy. And when you, when you have an economy that, that's, that grew, so, so let me give you an example. So, so China's GDP is 10 to 11 trillion, okay, GDP. 10 years ago, 15 years ago, it was 1 to 2 to 3 trillion. So the economy has gone from 1, 2, 3 trillion to 10 trillion over the last 10 to 15 years. There's, there's no way a bunch of centrally planned men in Beijing can plan and regulate that type of growth. Unfortunately, we seem to be having some technical difficulties with this broadcast. Larry went on to say that the Chinese economy is growing so quickly that it's difficult for those in control to regulate it. Also, the U.S. receives an enormous amount of imports from China. We have had our own problems in regulating these imports as well. My last question to Larry was, should investors have money in equities or bonds? Larry's response was definitely bonds. He's bullish on bonds. He thinks most equities have topped out for this year and investors should take their profits and invest in bonds for the rest of 2016. For more of his advice, you can go to his website, Lawrence G. McDonald, that's spelled M-C-D-O-N-A-L-D dot com, where you can subscribe to his newsletter, The Bear Traps Report. There is also information on there as to how to contact him to schedule him as a speaker at your next event. You can follow him on Twitter at Lawrence McDonald at ConvertBond, C-O-N-V-E-R-T, B-O-N-D. His book, the New York Times bestseller, is called A Colossal Failure of Common Sense, The Inside Story of the Collapse of Lehman Brothers. And you can get it on Amazon. Don't forget to look for Larry McDonald as a guest financial commentator on CNBC's Fast Money and Squawk Box. Larry, thank you so much for being my guest. I've enjoyed having you, and I hope you'll come back. Thanks, all of you, for listening. Until next time. Thank you for spending this time with us. We sincerely hope that you've enjoyed the show. If you would like to comment or have an idea for the show or have a question for Lori or for one of her guests, please visit her on Facebook, on her website, where you will find this show and previous shows archived. Join us again next Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific. Until then, have a great week.